April 10th, 2011, lecture discussion number special request six, or uh, Judges 19, 20, 21. So once again, April 10, 2011, uh, lecture discussion special request six. Irrespective of where we end up today, uh, this will likely conclude this series on Judges 19, 20, 21, or what we can now call, uh, now be entitled, I guess, uh, Misty's question or the hewing of Agag question, if you will, uh, which is, you might remember, being so long ago as it is now, almost two months, that question was the hewing of Agag question. Why didn't Saul, the Benjamite king, let me repeat that, why didn't Saul, the Benjamite king of Israel, who was from Gebeah or Jebeah, whichever wish you prefer, I think more evidence is it's Jebeah, but some will say Gibeah because of the Gibeonite uh, possible link there. But who was from Jebeah killed Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Why didn't Saul, the Benjamite from Jebeah, kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites, as God commanded him? And that, of course, is 1 Samuel 15. And if you remember, Samuel did it himself instead of Saul. Saul leaves Agag alive in direct uh, conflict with God's uh, ordered to do otherwise. And now what's really interesting is you have to ask the obvious question there. Why did God want Agag, and I'll help you with this now, removed from the nation of Israel? Because he did. And Samuel removed them. And that, of course, is the incident that necessitates Saul's removal as king and, and results ultimately in the witch of Endor event of 1 Samuel 28, which is where we were before we started doing all these special requests. And now it is heretofore evermore regarded as the misty question. Uh, did, uh, did you tell Adina that, uh, about the pumpkin rolls already? Good. Get on that. Because that's critically important. That raises attendance about 30%, if everyone knows. The heretofore evermore misty question is this. Uh, what is the relationship between Saul and Agag and Judges 19, 20, and 21, which ultimately becomes the oath problem meaning of Judges 19, 20, and 21. And I think I will hopefully uh, solve all of that for you today. That's, of course, the plan. I always have a plan. I'm going to explain to you that, yes, Judges 19, 20, 21 really happened. It's actual historical event. Those men fought that war. But what God is trying to illustrate underneath it is also greatly significant because there's another war that is involved there, and you may not uh, understand that so easily. But it's the oath problem. If, uh, if you uh, have read ahead and if you have figured it out, then you're right on target. But hopefully also you've noticed the Gebeah Benjamite cutting to pieces uh, that is here. Saul is a Gebeah Benjamite. That's exactly what's going on in Judges 19, 20, and 21. Uh, that we're removing is evil from Israel in both places. What's the obvious question then? Is it the same kind of evil? Is Agag doing the same thing as the sons of Belial are doing? Uh, and so that question comes. And, and then you see this void made by God. And the no such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt. That's very important. You remember, Samuel goes and cuts this guy to pieces in a particular place, Gilgal. Very important to know why he cut him to pieces and why he was cutting him to pieces there. He's removing evil. 
Why wouldn't Saul do it? A couple of you came up after the Sunday last week and, and gave me your positions, and I thought they were very well thought through and, and correct, by the way, in case you were wondering, those of you who did that. But I also want you, I hope that you've started placing these things side by side. I hope you've got Saul, Samuel, and Agog, Agag, I'm sorry, side by side with Judges 19, 20, and 21. So 1 Samuel 15, 19, 20, and 21. And look at the similarities between the two. It's very important to see those things. And then when you're doing that, or I hope you have been doing that, but I hope you're also busily looking at 19, 20, 21 of Judges and also Revelation 19. Where I have Christ doing what? Cutting someone to pieces with a sword and removing evil. Obvious question. How much of the evil is the same? And then Matthew 24 and Matthew 13 and other such tribulational passages because those all become very important as well here. Okay. That's absolutely the right thing to do. And let me just say this, Judges 19, 20, 21, it is filled to the brim with very complex prophecies. That's what it is primarily. Uh, though it's a story depicting darkness and evil that we can't imagine or comprehend. And let me just begin by saying that again. We can't imagine or comprehend the darkness that was going on there. Do not go over it quickly. Do not think, oh, it's another woman who was raped and killed. We had 50 of those in the United States today. Maybe a hundred, I don't know, but we've had a lot of them. That's not what happened, Judges 19, 20, 21. Far darker than that. A darkness that we cannot imagine or comprehend. And it's primarily a tribulational prophecy, evil that must be removed. That's what Judges 19, 20, 21 is. Complex tribulational prophecy. And that's something that I should probably illustrate, and I'm going to today with what I like to call the incomplete, essential list so far of important things from Judges 19, 20, and 21. So that's what we're going to do. Again, the incomplete, essential list. I've got to add this other disclaimer as well. I'm covering as many of the bases as I can, and it's not necessarily in the correct order. Okay, all of that's part of the cliffside plausible deniability motto. So here we go. This will make Amanda happy. 1A, because I forgot it. That's why we start with a 1A. No king. No king in Israel. In those days, no king. That's the, remember, it begins with this and ends with this. So this entire passage is, is surrounded or parentheses or, if you will, bookended by no king in those days in Israel. And then I have, as you remember, the Levite priest who is also called master. And so you begin to see, develop this priest-master reference to him. And note, therefore, always, what are we doing as we read this? We're always trying to find Christ. And then I have the woman wife. Now, some will say concubine, but there's no evidence that she was a lesser wife. A woman wife who despised her husband, I believe if you study, you will come to that conclusion. She despised him and fought with him and left. Okay, so she leaves. So I have a woman who hates the priest master and leaves, and he goes to find her. He chases after her, and he speaks kindly to her. And ultimately, she does come back, doesn't she, somehow. And so we have this, this kind 
pursuit of the woman. And I want you to uh, see that very important number three. That's a Hosea theme, isn't it? We'll get to that in a minute. That's where Hosea comes in again. So then, after being almost five days in the home of the, of his father, of the father of his wife, the priest master Levite leaves with the woman, and he's going back to his his uh, home, and he passes by uh, Jebus, the place of the Jebusites, which is also called, as you know, Jerusalem. I misspelled it. Jerusalem. Gotta get my I got my S and. You backwards, Jerusalem, Jehovah, Jireh, Salam. He bypasses it because the Jebusites at that time had, a, had control of it. And instead, he goes to Jebeah. And again, Saul is from Jebeah. And Jebeah is in the Gibeonite control. I'm sorry, not the Gibeonite. Well, I just, too many things in my little brain. Is in Benjamite control, part of the Benjamite tribe. And then there's this old man as he is going through, going through Jebeah, this old man sees him in the courtroom or in the courtyard and says, you can't stay here. And now you see this lot connection that is developing in Sodom, right? The same kind of issue. Lot found the angels in the courtyard in Genesis 19 and took them to his house. We have an old man who sees the priest master and his wife in the courtyard and takes him to his house. So Sodom begins to show up here. Very important to know that Sodom is woven into this story. And then there is a virgin daughter. And again, whoops, almost made her a vegan daughter. A virgin daughter. Okay. A virgin daughter element is there, and that is also from what? That's a Sodom issue, isn't it? And so Sodom, Sodom is showing up everywhere. And then finally, I have what's called the perverted men, but really is the sons of Belial surround the house. And the sons of Belial, Belial is a name for Satan. And what is that? They surround. I mean, right, surround. They gather and they surround. And that is what? That's a Sodom. And so all of a sudden in this story, Sodom, Sodom, Sodom begins to show up. And to disregard Sodom here is really a serious mistake uh, that you will find made most of the time, unfortunately, as you study commentaries. And then the intent is to kill the priest, if you remember that. To kill the priest. But they couldn't kill the priest for whatever reason, or they didn't kill the priest, so they took the wife. So I have the substitution of the wife. And then her subsequent death, she is murdered, death of the wife, and she gets to the doorstep. And she has been that it says ravaged, literally tore to pieces. And no such deed had ever been done or seen in Israel since they left Egypt. In other words, this was a very unusual crime. 
it isn't a typical rape murder. I mean, if there can be a typical rape murder, but it isn't. It's far worse, far darker than that, and that's very important to remember. And the priest then does something extraordinary. He divides his wife's dead body into 12 pieces. And he sends it as evidence throughout Israel. Um, And so everyone would know that what happened happened here. And he sends them as again to all 12 tribes. So they're sent as evidence. So everyone now in Israel has to respond to this. And they do respond. All of Israel, the Bible says, all of Israel arose as one man to confront this great, great wickedness, this unbelievable event that happened to this wife where she died on the doorstep. Whatever happened to her was so extraordinary that when Israel saw it, they recognized immediately what it was and they knew it was great wickedness and they arose as one All of Israel arose as one, it says, united against this wickedness, except except Benjamin did not. Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, decides for whatever reason, it's critical to know what the reason is, they decide that they're going to defend the men that sodomized, or the, the sons of Belial that surrounded the house and destroyed this woman. And so what is their motive? And they have to know that all of Israel is arising as one, but they're going to fight, and they do. They defend these men. It, it, it seems to be un, unfathomable. I have a small group of men, less than a 1,000, who do something absolutely horrible, and I have the city of Anchorage, if you will, rise up to defend these 1,000 men against the entire United States military. What would make Anchorage, as use it as an absurd illustration, what would make them think that they could defeat this vast army that would come here united as one? But they did. That's what happened. So think like a Benjamite. Did they know they were going to lose? No, they were sure what? They're sure they're going to win. What's the obvious question? What made them think they were going to win? And where else in the Bible does that situation rise up? Huh? People that can't possibly win are sure they're going to. Benjamin would not listen, it says. Would not listen. So something is going on here where Benjamin thinks they're going to get a better deal from these uh, sons of Belial. They're going to get a better deal from the sons of Satan. Let me put it another way. They're going to get a better deal from Satan. That's what they think. And they're going to win. And then this very important issue, the evil has to be removed. Evil must be removed. Let me put it another way for you so that you can begin to understand it perhaps. Sin must end. Okay, now this is sin at its darkest level. We don't have any idea how dark this was. By the way, is it coming back? Yes, it is coming back. We have no idea how dark this sin was, but this, but you, again, you see the 
evil, the end. What are the three things for the tribulation? The purpose of the tribulation, number one, worldwide revival. God is going to put things in the sky, if you will, that will just transform people's thought processes. They will understand that this is coming. And uh, and many, many people will be saved as a result of the ministry of the 144,000 and the two witnesses. So worldwide revival was going to happen. That's the purpose of the tribulation. Second purpose is what? Turn the hearts of the stubborn people, Israel, back where they belong, which is to Christ as Messiah, King, as God, as I am, as the Ancient of Days, to break the stubborn will of the, of the stiff-necked people. And then what's the third? Remove sin, that's right, in the wicked ones. Same thing, in the wicked ones, right? Is this in the way? I think it may be. I'll move it best I can. And then um, then we have these three things, very important. God says three things. He says, A, Judah first, right? He says that on the first day. On the second day, he says, go against him. On the third day, he says, I will deliver them. And that's very important. Deliver. Did I spell it right? I did. I will deliver. Let me just take an aside here and get a sip of soda, which I call medicine. Um, Judah first, day one. Go up against him, day two. Go up for tomorrow. I will deliver them into your hand. That's day three. Might be time to buy a new one of those, huh? No, we replaced the batteries the other day, so I don't think that's the issue. But anyway, back to where I am. Hopefully we're, we're operating again. God says three things, and the Ark of the Covenant is there. Let me run over really quickly and write that without saying anything. The Ark is there. You've got to know that. The ark is there. My goodness, that's unbelievable. The Shekinah glory is over the mercy seat of the ark. And he says, God says to them, Judah first, day one, go up against him, day two. For, go up for tomorrow, I will deliver them into your hand, day three. He says those three things. And this is why I want you to recognize that if I have a deliver into the hands that is God's, then I'm going to have a counterfeit deliver into their hands, aren't I? I have the counterfeit with the true all the time. Satan is going to have a deliver God into somebody's hands somewhere. There's going to be a deliverer of God into the hands of the sons of Satan. Where did that occur in the New Testament? Do not call Judas a betrayer. He is not. He's a deliverer. And the delivery is very important. That theme is all throughout the Bible. The delivering theme. And then 19, which isn't, I'm not going to be able to do this now. I won't be able to write it very much. After three days, the sons of Satan are defeated. That's very important. The wickedness is removed. Satan is defeated after three days. There's your crucifixion timeline. And as a result of that, the wickedness being removed, the Benjamites are almost exterminated. So that's item 19. Now, 20 
Again, the Sodom connection. You can see the Sodom connection keep popping up here. And there, if I have a Sodom connection, then what other, where am I connected now? I have a Genesis 6 connection, don't I? Because Sodom has a Genesis 6 connection. That's how I get to Genesis 6. And then Leviticus 17 would be item 22, uh, 10 through 11, which is discussing blood. Don't eat the blood. Don't drink the blood. Uh, same thing for Leviticus 7, a blood uh, 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 forbidden. It is forbidden to drink blood. And then Mark 13, 17, which we read last week, that's the woe to the pregnant woman of Israel. And we tied that into Hosea 13, 16, which says that she will be ripped apart, right? Now I want to read Hosea 10, 9, because I left that out last week. I need to push it, put it in here uh, really quickly uh, while I've got it on the forefront again. But always, always take Hosea 13, 16 and put it next to... Uh, and put it next to uh, Mark thirteen seventeen. when you read that woe to pregnant women who are fleeing, as that explains Mark thirteen seventeen. Okay, here is Hosea, and you should expect Hosea to show up, shouldn't you? Here is Hosea saying this in 10, 9. O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gebeah. There they stood, the battle in Gebeah against the children of iniquity. So Hosea uh, brings up this very important battle in Judges, and we should expect that because the theme of Hosea is what? What is the theme of Hosea? Yell it out, if you will. If you read Hosea, what are you reading about? It is it is the husband-wife theme again, where the wife, Israel, is leaving the husband God because she is despising him and rejecting him. So Hosea Gomer is a typology of God Israel. We should expect that here because we start right off with the Levite master and the woman and the, the woman wife is leaving him. We have the Hosea theme in Judges or we have the Judges theme in Hosea, whichever you prefer. Okay, now that's the essential incomplete list uh, so far. Now, if you've been attending the past few Sundays or have been following along dutifully on the internet, then you know that, as I just finished saying, that Mark 13, 17, Hosea 13, 16 play a major part in explaining the what of Judges 19, 20, 21. In other words, what happened there? Exactly what happened? What happened to that woman? What did the sons of Belial, what did the sons of Satan do to this wife, this woman of Israel? And I think Hosea 13, 16 and of course, Leviticus 7 and Leviticus 17, 10 through 11, uh, 7, 26 through 27. I think they, they tell you why they did it. So 13, 16, Hosea, Mark 13, 17, they tell you what they did. Leviticus 17, 10 through 11, Leviticus 7, 26 through 27, they begin to explain the why why the sons of Belial attacked, why they surrounded the house, what they were trying to accomplish. And that that also begins to explain what happened in Sodom. When you get all the pieces and you put them all side by side, especially when you add Ezekiel 16. Did I, I read Ezekiel 16 to you? I don't know if I did or not. Let me read it again. It doesn't take long. 
1648 through 49. As I live, said the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters. Let me just say this really fast. If I'm having trouble trying to figure out what's going on in Judges, all I got to do is find all the places where what happened in Judges has happened somewhere else and put them all together side by side and then go around and find all the uh, scriptures that will uh, elucidate that, will uh, give me some other information. So it's like going around getting evidence, like I like to say, finding all the pieces, putting them all together on the table and starting to put them together like a big puzzle. That's what it is. Why does he do that? He wants you to do that. He wants you to go around searching for stuff because he doesn't want you to be what? Yeah, stupid. That's right. The more wisdom you have, as Bill was saying, and that's true. We, we started out a long, long time ago saying, are we going to be a typical church? We're not. Do you want to know or do you want to feel? We decided that we wanted to try to know. And that's our plan. The feeling churches are much larger than the knowing churches. So when we did that, we realized, okay, it's going to be a tough road. It's going to slog going to be hard. Part of the problem is, is that I'm not very good at feelings. I can't cry four services at the same time and, you know, can't do it. I could have it written here, cry now. <laughs> Paragraph three, page four, cry. I could try it. I've gone to those services. See, I'm one of those guys and I'm going to go to your mega church and I'm going to watch all your services. I'm going to watch them all. I'm going to watch them all. And I'm going to see what? If you cry in the same spot every single time. And you do. Or they do. And now I know it's what? It's a trick. It's a scam. He's not really sad. He's acting. And that's entertainment. That's simulation, by the way, is what they'll tell you. It's okay if we simulate something that isn't really true because your faith is increased. I don't think your faith is increased. I think your stupidity is increased. Your naivete is increased. I think your gullibility is increased. Okay, done with that rant. I looked around first to see if there was any visitors, and of course hardly anybody listens to us on the Internet now. So how, how much trouble can I get in? <laughs> okay. Ezekiel 16, 48. As I live, see, this is a piece. When you're going to study Sodom, you've got to go here. As I live, because it's going to send you to Genesis 3, isn't it? As I live, said the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters, because there were five cities in the plain, have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She, here's the sins of Sodom. This is what's going on in Sodom. She and her daughter had pride. Number one sin. What's the obvious question? What are they proud of? They'd done something. They're really proud of it. What'd they do? Fullness of food. That's one of the great sins of Sodom. Fullness of food. Why is that a sin? Because that, yes, exactly right. And, and it's not fair because he was here when I did Sodom 15 years ago. But he's absolutely right. Fullness of food. 
an abundance of idleness. This is her sins. See, why did they have food? How did they get so much food? They're really proud of the fact they got food. And they're really proud of the fact they don't have to do something to get the food. What is it? They don't have to work. They got food. Don't have to work for it. How'd they get there? Now, we got food. But we usually have to go out and at least do something to go pay the food. We take pieces of paper down to the grocery store. Who will take pieces of paper and give us food? What a wonderful deal that is. That's not going to last much longer. But then pretty soon we're going to go down there with a goat. The rate this is going, huh? Give me a can of corn for my goat. Actually, I'd want more than that. Fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy who came to her for mercy. She gave no mercy to the poor or the needy, and they were haughty. They felt superior. They were very proud. They had solved, as as, uh, Troy said, they had solved the curse of, of toiling and sweating for their food. They no longer had to do that. They were completely idle. Nobody had to work in this place. They had all of this worked out for them. They had, they had extraordinary capabilities. They were very proud of their ability to defeat Genesis 3, the curse, and they were, they felt superior to everybody else in the world. Why did they feel superior to everybody else? What made them feel superior? Because they were smarter? No, they were also physically more capable, and they committed these abominations before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. That's what God says about Sodom. Sodom had defeated, overcome the sweat, toil, thorns, thistles. And so the obvious question, if they overcame the the work and the sweat and all of that, and they were totally idle and they were, they felt very superior, then how had they, how did, how close did they come to the dust death problem? I think they'd come pretty close. They certainly had extended their lives. I believe that's obvious from the text. And then my other one, of course, is how about this multiplication of pain and childbirth? How are they doing with that? How interested are they in childbirth? And why would they be interested in childbirth? Why is multiplying pain in childbirth part of the curse? Have you ever asked yourself that? Have you ever read that? Let me, let me read that. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. To, well, which just makes sense. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. He's going to multiply the pain of childbirth and the sorrow of childbirth. Why? Why is that in the curse? Okay, with all that on the board, and I can't write on the board anymore because of our technical problems that we'll work on hopefully Thursday. With all that on the board, so imagine that's on the board. The rest, Sodom, uh, Matthew 13, 17, Hosea, um, all of that. Now we can add more to it, which I can't write. So that's really too bad. But we'll add a a few more. So let's go to Judges 20 now, and let's add more. And let's start at verse um, 34. So I'm skipping some, but I'll recap it here in a minute. I've said it already mostly, but I'll go back and get it again. Now we're back in Judges. And we know there's a Sodom connection. If for no other reason to know this, that God took out the evil as he saw fit in both places, didn't he? And he's going to do it again in another place. Where's that prominently? Revelation 19. There you go. 
So here we go. Verse 34, follow along. And 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Gibeah, and the battle was fierce. So I got 10,000. How many do I got on the other side? We're going to think about that in a minute. The battle was fierce, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. So the Lord does this. And by the way, everybody knows the Lord did it. There isn't any doubt. They all know God did this. We couldn't have done this. We had a great plan, and our plan sort of worked. But it could not have possibly worked unless something else took place here. So in this battle, it became obvious that God did it. The, God, the Lord defended, defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the children, it doesn't say the children of Israel did a great job and it all worked out and God kind of hung back and said, nice job, pat him on the head. It said God had an active role. He had to do what he did. And the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. They killed a whole bunch more. But those were the army of the Benjamites. So the children of Benjamites saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gebeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gebeah. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal, the prearranged signal, if you will, the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city, whereupon the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. Now if you read this, you may not understand that the way the Bible is written in the Hebrew is a recurrence principle. In other words, the Bible gives you a basic uh, block of information and then it goes on to explain what's inside that block. It's called recurrence. Very important to know. Hebrew principle of recurrence. Now the Benjamin, now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and there was the whole city going up to heaven. And when the men are going up in smoke, it will put in uh, italics, but the smoke is not in there. In the original text, and because it's in italics. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. First they didn't know, and now they know. First they thought they were going to win easily again. We're going to win. This is easy. This is slaughter. We're going to wipe these Israelites out. Oh, no. Disaster has come upon us suddenly. Find all the sudden disaster come upon you. Scriptures, okay? Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel. If you turn your back in a sword fight, you're in a lot of trouble. You're not going to last long. You're going to be caught from behind and hacked to pieces, right? Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities, they destroyed in their midst. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gebeah towards the east. And, and 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, and all these were men of valor. Then they turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimon, and they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways. Then they pursued them relentlessly up to Gidom and killed 2,000 of them. Also, So all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 
men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimon and stayed there at the rock of Rimon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city. Men and beasts, all who were found, they also set fire to all the cities they came to. Now let me add this. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah. That's where they all got together and united as one. They came to Mizpah and said, they looked at the evidence and they said, as one, we have to got to remove this great evil from Israel. And the men had sworn an oath at Mizpah at that point, saying, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. Now, why would they say that? Can't give our daughters. And giving daughters to evil is where in the Bible? Genesis 6, there you go, which connects you to Sodom. By the way, so you know, Steve came up and, and I was talking to a couple of you about this uh, a few weeks ago. Why is the woman told to wear a headscarf in Scripture? Because a bunch of churches, they, they, they read that and they put all their women in headscarves and then they don't read the rest of it, which is a real shame. Because of Genesis 6, that's what it says. Take a look at that sometime in your spare time. Okay, what should go on the incomplete essential list so far? So far list, what should go? Select men, 10,000, fierce battle. They, the Benjamites did not know that disaster was going to come on them. So I got, a, I got select men of Israel, selected 10,000 of them, and there's a fierce battle in, Gib, in Gibeah. And the Benjamites didn't know disaster. The Lord defeated Benjamin. That's important. There's an ambush here. There's a great cloud of smoke that's a signal. Uh, and then they saw the disaster had come and they panicked and they were cut down from behind and massacred. And six, there's 600 Benjamite survivors hiding in the rocks. And then the Israel went on and killed the women and the children and the animals and they burned the cities of Benjamin. What were they doing? They were removing the evil, weren't they? How evil is the evil? So what do we got here? Let's go over it without being able to go to the board, which is frustrating me. Can you tell? Twice the nation of Israel goes up against the tribe of Benjamin and there's 700, 700, they have 700 men of extraordinary skill with Benjamin. So twice they go up to get them. And twice Israel is slaughtered by these guys. So I got guys who can throw rocks they never miss. That's pretty good. They never miss. And they're throwing rocks with both hands. That's what it means, left-handed. It means ambidextrous. They're throwing rocks powerfully with both hands, and they don't miss. 700 of those guys. So every time they go up and attack this group in Gebeah, they are slaughtered. Twice they are slaughtered. The initial time they asked God, who will go first to fight? Who will go first? And God answers what? Judah first. That's a Christology. That's a picture of Christ. That's a Christ prophecy. And then Judah goes up to fight and what happens? It's crushed. They're crushed. Thousands of them dead. Tens of thousands. And the people of Israel come back and they weep. And they ask this time, the second time. They don't ask who's going to go first this time. Nobody wants to go now. I saw what happened. It was a massacre. Dead Judah everywhere. And this time they ask, should we even be fighting? 
Because we asked you, God, the Ark of the Covenant, Phineas the priest, Joshua is just barely dead, if you will, for a time mark for you. We asked you, and we go up there and we get massacred. So should we even be fighting? So never mind who goes first anymore. Should we even go at all? And God says what? Go. The second day. And they obediently go. And Israel goes and they have the exact same plan, which proves that they're typical church members, right? Obedient Israel goes with the exact same plan as on the first day. And again, they are slaughtered. And they, just like the first day, they wept before God and they weep again before God. Same pattern, same result, different day. We call that how we run Sunday school around here. And the Ark of the Covenant is there. It's there. That's a key piece, by the way. Why don't they just use the Ark? Now the third day, Israel comes out exactly as the first two days. They have two days, militarily think of this. They have come out and they have all in their battle formations and all their gear and they march towards the city of Gebeah and those and the Benjamites. But I'm going to say this, those 700 guys cut them down like fish in a barrel, ducks on a pond. They wipe them out. They do that the first day. They come back and we, those guys never missed. They hit us all. Like going up against uh, Gatling guns, if you could imagine. I used to have something in Vietnam, so I'm aging myself, called Puff the Magic Dragon. And it would fly overhead and, and put a bullet every, I think it was every four or five inches. On, uh, so if I, if I had a bullet here at five inches away, I got another bullet. I just had bullets everywhere. It just level everything. That is what we're going up against here if you're Israel, except puff never misses. There are no bullets going into the ground. They're hitting everything. They never miss. Very important. Now the third day, Israel comes out exactly like they did in the first two days, the same formation. They approach the fortifications of Gebeah as they had previously, and the 700 snipers once again are sitting up there. They're going to kill them just as easily as before. And Benjamin is very confident, Judges 20:32. They don't know that disaster is looming. They think the same thing is going to keep happening here. And the general army of Israel this time does something a little different. They pretend to panic, and they begin to withdraw and they act like they're scared, which is, by the way, the exact same strategy that Joshua used as well. And the Benjamites then are lured out of the city. What have I just done? I have separated the egg from the yolk, haven't I? What have I just done? I got the Benjamites coming out. What's the obvious question militarily? Where are the 700 guys? This is the plan of Joshua at Ai. If you remember Joshua 8 in that lecture from, golly, 15 years ago maybe. The king of Ai was lured out by something very special. Joshua stuck it on a stick out there and got him to come out and get it. He wanted to lure him out and he pretended to panic and they, and they come in behind him and ambushed him. By the way, this happens to the Antichrist, the Kurds, if you will, the Assyrians. They come into Babylon and burn his city as he marches towards Jerusalem as part of the campaign of Armageddon. Anyway, Achan had stolen something, Joshua 8, and 
something that belonged to God, something that God had made, I believe. And Joshua used it. He got, got it, and he used it to get the king out of, of Ai out of his city. And that's another lecture. Um, go back 15 years and find that one. We actually think we might have found it. We've been looking for old lectures of mine, and we found a box full of cassette tapes. So that'll be cool if it's there. Unless a mysterious fire burns them all to protect the pastor. Could happen. Okay, where were we? Yeah, uh, The Benjamites, they come out. That's great news. I'm separating them from the 700, aren't we? And they're all proud of themselves. We're going to go kill all these idiot Israelites. And they give chase, and they leave Gebeah, a big mistake. And the 10,000 selected, the best of the best, the very best of Israel, they attack the city of Gebeah. How many are left there? And the battle is fierce. I'm going up against guys that don't miss. I got 10,000. I got the best of the best. Can you imagine volunteering for that duty? Okay, these guys don't miss. God says, I'll deliver them. Who wants to go? 10,000 go. The very best step forward. That's a remarkable thing that they did. Remarkable, the obedience there. And the fighting is fierce. So the obvious question, who is fighting the 10,000 select of Israel? Who is left in the city? Who puts up this fierce fight? I submit it is the 700 incredible men of Gebeah. So to summarize, the Benjamite army is chasing and retreating a pretending to retreat Israeli uh, Israelite division and another Israelite division of 10,000 is fighting 700 Gebeah fighters, if I'm right. And of course I'm, why would I ask that? Golly, that's almost... Okay, if I'm right. Argue with me later. Bring a lunch. A third division of Israelite is waiting for the great cloud of smoke, the prearranged signal. So think about it. I come up. 30 of them are killed. They begin to retreat. Out comes the Benjamites, and we're retreating, and they're killing them, and they're going, oh, this is easy. We're going to have such a great time. 10,000 come into the fortified city, and this incredibly fierce hand-to-hand fight ensues. Finally, there is victory, and they burn the city in the prearranged signal, and right at that point, another division of Israelite army attacks, and this one stops retreating. And they start slaughtering, slaughtering the Benjamites. And we end up with Israel, or Benjamin now panicking because they turned back and they looked at that fire. I believe they, and they knew disaster had come upon them because when they saw that fire, they knew the sons of Belial were dead. They knew these guys. Whoops. Come over there and do that. Got to go back here where the mic is. They knew their secret weapon. It was dead. They knew their power, if you will, was dead. And now it is 26,000 Benjamites against hundreds of thousands of Israelites. And this is not a fair fight anymore. I don't have my never miss guys. I got too far away from the city. Oops. Bad idea. We got big problems. And only six, and I submit that this, by the way, this war, as you know, is the pattern of Revelation 19, uh, 19 through 21 and 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12, where Christ is described as killing the Antichrist 
and then the panic in the army that fights in Armageddon against him, what happens to them. But I end up ultimately with 600 Benjamites left in the rocks, and the army of Israel turns and begins uh, to kill the women and children of Benjamin and burn all of their cities, and they're going to remove this great, great wickedness that had not ever been done or seen since Israel left Egypt. Okay? And now the rest of the story. Or where we say we're now starting the sermon. But I won't. I can see the time just like everybody else. It turns around all through the sermon and looks at it. I can see it just like you. I should put it behind me so that then you could count it down. That would be cool. Okay. This oath... I can't, you read ahead, I'll finish it next week, even though I said I wasn't going to do it. I should get to seven, I guess. But there's an oath. They say, we're not going to give our daughters to the Benjamites. Well, now there aren't any daughters for the Benjamites because they killed them all. It's one thing to say, we won't give our daughters to the Benjamites because the Benjamites had their own wives, right? Well, we killed all the wives. We killed all the daughters. We killed all the animals. There's 600 guys hiding in the rocks up there. And we're about to exterminate one of the 12 tribes of Israel in order to remove this sin. So how are we going to solve this? We have an unsolvable problem. We gave an oath. And we can't break that oath. That's an oath before God. Can't do it. If we don't do it, these 600 are going to die out and an entire tribe will be voided, blotted out. We can't do that. So what do they do? They figure out that Jabesh, um, uh, Gilead had not come, or Gilead uh, uh, had not come to the, uh, to, to the fight. And so they went in there and killed all those people except for 400 virgin girls. And they give those 400, but we still got 200 we got to have. How are we going to solve? This is unsolvable. So let me explain it to you again. I have an unsolvable problem. Where am I now in the Bible? I got to solve something that is unsolvable. It can't be solved. How are we going to solve it? Where am I? I am at Genesis 15. I am at Matthew 4. The uns- Matthew 26, 36 through uh, who I can't, 56? Let me check. 36 through 46. I'm at Gethsemane. I'm at Matthew 4. I'm at Genesis 15. I have the unsolvable burning furnace and smoking lamp. I'm sorry, burning furnace and flaming lamp of Genesis 15. I have the testing of Christ, Matthew 4. I have not my, what's in the cup at Matthew 26, 36 through 46? The unsolvable problems. Not my will, but your will. That dramatic theodicy once again. Wouldn't you expect that? I'm removing evil. Every time I remove evil, I have to deal with something that's unsolvable. What's that? The judgment versus mercy. Exactly right. Let's rise and be dismissed.